0: Don't miss out on all the extra content I'm sharing. I can't wait to see you over there. Hey, I'm
1: Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
0: Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's
1: burrow.com slash ACAST. burrow.com slash ACAST. I was 23 and I was over there trying to reconnect with my mom once again. And I got a call that Eva had died. One of my best friends in the UK had died and she had died of an accidental overdose. And I was absolutely devastated, needless to say. And the first thing that my mum said to me was, why would you want to go and stand at someone like that's grave? Why are you crying about this person? I could understand if it was one of your other friends, but this person, why do you care? And, you know... I'll always say, and I always say it to Eva, even though she's not here anymore. She gave me the courage to finally stand up and say, I'm not doing this anymore. And we were at the airport. And as I was leaving, my mum said, you know, this has really spoiled my weekend. Oh my and uh, I said, "It spoiled someone's life. I said, this is someone's daughter. This is my best friend. I'm very close to Eva's mother still. You know, this is this is some, it's a tragic death. And I looked her in the face and for the first time I said, this is the last time you'll ever see me. And I got on the plane and I haven't seen her since.
0: Welcome to How My Parents Raised Me, I'm Dawn Chitty. When we are born, we arrive here as pure and perfect, Souls And the direction our life takes from that moment is deeply connected to what our parents bring to our lives. And what our parents bring to our lives is deeply connected to what their parents brought to their lives. And that's the cycle of families. I have always craved connection with real and raw stories to understand what makes you, you. Content warning, if you are triggered by the themes of this podcast, please seek a helpline in your city. Hey, my beautiful friend, if you suffer from anxiety and are sick of all the ways it's taking over your life, please take a look at Panic Away. For over 10 years now, Panic Away has been showing people how to break anxious patterns and get their old carefree self back, the person they were before anxiety ruled their life. Panic Away shows you how to break the anxiety loop and it gives your nervous system a chance to relax. It's totally drug free and highly successful and it helps people with all levels of anxiety. Panic Away comes with a full money back guarantee, so you really have nothing to lose and everything to gain. It's time to take back control of your life, your happiness, and your freedom. A life free of anxiety is like living an entirely different life. Click the link in the show notes for access to Panic Away. Hey, my beautiful friends. Welcome to the podcast. Please don't forget, if you have a story to share with me, my email address is in the show notes, or you can DM me on Instagram at mybigloveproject. I've got to tell you, I feel so honoured to sit with some of the most incredible humans on the planet and hear their stories for this podcast. And this week's guest is such a light Kat was born to a mum who was an addict and a dad who wanted nothing to do with her. Kat's mum did try to keep her, but in the end, she decided she just couldn't cope and put her up for adoption. Abandoned by both parents, Kat was left in a home until she was three years old, when she was finally adopted by a family where, unfortunately, the abandonment continued. Her adoptive mother wasn't interested in connecting with Kat. Her brother was struggling with mental health issues and it was really only her adoptive dad that seemed to always be available and on her side. But many years later, Kat found out that her adoptive father was living with a terrible secret. Kat has been desperate and suicidal and yet she has also been gifted the most incredible humans to guide her on her path and Kat's resilience and determination to break the generational cycles of abuse and abandonment are totally inspirational. Please join me now for Kat's story. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to have you here. You connected with me because you have a story to share that's been a difficult journey and It all started when you were born to a mum who was struggling with addiction. What do you know about that time, your first few months of life?
1: So I know that she was struggling with a cocaine addiction. She was also struggling with health-related issues. And I know that my biological father didn't want anything to do with me and told her to get an abortion. And the first few months, I know that I was with her until I was eight months old. And she really struggled to take care of me from what I've learned now. I think people would come over to the house and they would be quite shocked. She painted her entire apartment black at one stage. And a relative said they just found me in a crib crying. So... I know that I think I was quite neglected during that time. My biological father came to see me at the hospital. And ever since then, he just, yeah, he didn't want anything to do with her or with me. And I think it was around eight months that she called her sister, who's my auntie, and said that she can't cope. She couldn't cope with me anymore. And so that's when I went to live with my auntie for I was there definitely for my first birthday. Yeah. So she just couldn't, she just couldn't cope.
0: Obviously she was in a a really bad sort of situation there. And so you stayed with your auntie and Mm -hmm. was she able to care for you or she
1: wasn't able to do that? So she was able to care for me and she actually wanted to adopt me. And it was the eighties in South Africa. I was born in Johannesburg. And so it, wasn't a thing if you're not married you're not adopting you know you're not getting a child so she even had a friend of hers who was willing to marry her so that she could adopt me but my mum my biological mum was adamant that no one in our family was going to keep me and so it was my other auntie that came up with the idea of adoption I do find that knowing what I know now I do find it painful I know they did things like they took pictures of me to send to adoption agencies Makes me sort of feel like a bit of a rescue dog, you know, sort of if she's cute enough, you know, she'll get adopted, that kind of thing. And my auntie actually has those photos, but I've still not managed to look at them. She said that if I'm ready, I can look at them one day, but I'm not in the space where I'm quite ready to look at them. And after that, I was sent to a children's home, so put into care. And I was there... I think I was there for a year, and that's when I was waiting to be adopted out. And I have some information on that, that I never slept, that I was quite difficult, apparently, difficult toddler, and then I was adopted out when I was three.
0: Wow. The the levels of trauma in those first three years is crazy, isn't it? Because not only are you born to a mother who's not able to care for you properly you've probably sort of attached to your auntie and then she's not able to keep you and how crazy are these laws that say you can't keep this child like yeah. imagine if imagine if she kept you your life would mm-hmm. have been completely different right i'm sure you've never thought of that before <laughs> no <laughs> But I just sort of think it's crazy the amount of trauma just in those first yeah. three years. And then you are adopted out to a, a family, mm. aren't you? What do you mm. remember? Do you remember anything about that time of being adopted? Cause you were only three, obviously. I don't think I have
1: any memories from it. I got adopted out to Namibia, which is obviously a different country. And so that in itself, I can imagine was pretty traumatic. And I apparently was very, very, very scared, very withdrawn, wouldn't speak, didn't eat a lot. And I got adopted into a family of a mum, a dad and an adopted brother as well. And I have to say, I'm not entirely sure because you never know what your life was like had one thing been different. But I think it was out of the frying pan and into the fire with that adoption.
0: Yeah. So...
1: What were your adoptive mum and dad like? My adopted mum, it was definitely clear from the beginning that I wasn't her child. And she made it abundantly clear that I wasn't her child. And I definitely had a lot of unacknowledged grief from being adopted. And I was very much expected to be grateful by her, by members of her family I was just expected to be grateful that I had a roof over my head. I had food to eat. And even though she wasn't warm, she wasn't caring or nurturing, I was just expected to be grateful for that. My adoptive dad, on the other hand, he did treat me like his own and I did form quite a close bond with him. And over the years, I never felt like I wasn't his child. He he spent a lot of time with me and I definitely felt like I was his. I would say. So it was definitely two very different experiences growing up.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting, isn't it, that you say that the whole family thought you should be grateful. It's just crazy. I mean, these things, these things are crazy, aren't they? Like you're a little child and you've turned Mm -hmm. up. It's, it's crazy to think that they thought you needed to be grateful. It's just stuff like that is just so ridiculous because (laughs) You, there's just no understanding whatsoever. And the fact also yeah. that, you know, she made it clear that you weren't her daughter. You just have to wonder why somebody would want to adopt a child when that's their yeah. attitude.
1: That definitely went through my mind a lot because I was treated like a second class citizen. And I was always very aware from when I was really little that I was different to everybody in the family as well. And It just used to, I remember even thinking as a little kid, why am I here? Mm. If you didn't want me, why am I here? And, you know, I was definitely very aware from a very young age that I did not belong there. Um, Mm. Whether that was, you know, a feeling that I had in intuition or whether that was just, you know, forced down my throat at every given opportunity, I don't know. I definitely knew it was a strange melting pot that I'd been put into. Yeah. And do you remember any good times in Namibia as a little girl? I do. So I have a really strong connection to nature. I absolutely love being outside. And I think that's Namibia is this incredible, it's this incredibly beautiful country. You know, it has beaches, deserts, it's warm all the time. And I was saved by being outside all the time. I was never home. I was always outside. And we had quite a free upbringing. I was at the beach. I was in the desert and it really nourished my soul. And I really have a strong appreciation for nature because of it. It saved me 100%. Some of my best memories are of being outside and um, of experiencing that kind of freedom where they don't want anything from you. it does not expect anything from you. The world is just there and you can be yourself. I think that was definitely how I felt about Namibia and still do.
0: Yeah, sounds just the way you describe it it sounds so freeing just It was very
1: free. Yeah. 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 Very and
0: free. That all changed though didn't it when you were mm. 11? Yes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. What happened then? Um we moved to the UK and it was a very very difficult move. I'd never been out of Africa before and it was extremely difficult. We We moved here and we'd never been together really as a family properly because we had lots of extended family in Namibia. We had, my parents had lots of friends. And so when we moved here, it was the four of us together for the first time. And it very, very quickly started to disintegrate. My adoptive mum fell into a deep depression. It was around that time as well that I found out, my family had always told me that my adoptive mother had died because they stopped hearing from her. And it was around that time that they found out, oh no, actually she's alive, and then told me she was alive. And so I'd spent a long time believing she was dead and then to learn that she was alive all coincided with this move. My adoptive brother really struggled. He struggles with bipolar and he very, very quickly went downhill. He struggled with eating disorders, suicide attempts. It was a very difficult time moving to the UK. And
0: your family sort of is
1: imploding. And how is your mental health at that time? So I just remember I made myself smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until I was basically invisible. I just thought if I could do everything right and be quiet enough, I was really quiet at school. If I could just be quiet enough, I'd survive. And so I just Minimized every single thing about me until I was quite honestly probably a shell of a human being. And I just carried on like that for a really long time. And it was only when I met my friend Eva, who was going through mental health struggles at the time, that I finally found some sort of connection to somebody who was going through a hard time. And was we were able to talk to each other about it. And I was able to connect with her and slightly open up to somebody else about what was going on in my house.
0: Yeah. So was that at high school?
1: Yes. So I was about 16 when I met Eva. And we connected right away. And she was going through her own. She had an eating disorder and she was very, very helpful. My adoptive brother was very abusive towards me and he would regularly shove me against walls or, you know, beat me. And it was very much just allowed in our house. And because he had this eating disorder as well, I wasn't allowed to eat in front of him. I wasn't allowed to eat certain foods. I had to go upstairs in my bedroom and eat and hide food. He definitely controlled the house. And it it was a very dark time.
0: Yeah, that must have been so hard. And so you must have like almost had an eating disorder
1: yourself then. I did. I did develop an eating disorder, which went on for about 10 years. I became bulimic. And to be honest, I became around at the age of 16, 17, I became very much, I did anything to self-sabotage myself. I've been told so many times I felt not good enough. I'd been told I don't look like my family. I don't fit in with my family. I was definitely the black sheep of my family. And I just internalized all of that. And so anything I could do to hurt myself, I would do. So I began cutting, self-harming. I was bulimic. I would take prescription painkillers. Anything I could do to just numb the pain, you know, I think I was always told that I was too emotional. I was too, I felt too much. And so I did anything to feel less. And I did that for a number of years. And I did that very privately. And I wish that I'd have spoken to somebody at the time, but I just wasn't able to. I was so, I felt so isolated. And that was the way I coped for a really long time. Yeah. And it's so
0: sad when you think about how isolated and lonely yeah. you were in that situation. You obviously couldn't reach out to yeah. your mum or your dad. No. Um, but, but when you were 17,
1: mm-hmm. something happened with your mum, didn't it? Mm-hmm. So, my mum, I discovered that my mum was having an affair and she subsequently moved back to Cape Town. It was a very sudden move. She moved within us, finding out of the affair, she moved within two weeks. We didn't hear from her for six months. My dad definitely became, was on the way to, and he became an alcoholic. And he would, every single night, he would fall asleep on the sofa watching porn with a bottle of whiskey in his hand. And I'd come home from school or whatever I was doing. And the first the first job was to turn off the porn, get the whiskey bottle and put him to bed. And there was definitely some hairy times there where You know, if I ever got into an argument with him, he pushed me down the stairs. He was angry at me, angry at everybody. And yeah, it was again a very dark time. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so your mum just up and left. And what, you didn't, did you hear from her at all? We
1: didn't until six months later when she turned up in the kitchen like nothing had happened and I walked in from school I was just finishing school and I walked in and there she was you know cooking like nothing had happened and she flew into an absolute rage because I wasn't happy to see her you know it it was my fault that the affair was discovered you know it was my fault about this that and the other and she was absolutely infuriated that I wasn't happy to see her And needless to say, it didn't last very long. She was home for three weeks. And she said, actually, no, I did do the right thing. And she left again.
0: Wow. Yeah. My God. I'm just trying to sort of imagine what state you must have been in at that time, Mm -hmm. you know, because that's so much to deal with, isn't it? Yeah. Like, you must have been incredibly, you must have been so low at that time.
1: I was very, very low. I mean, I had a huge problem in expressing myself. I wasn't good at talking to anybody about what was going on. I also think that it's important to say that at that time, you know, I'm 35, you know, mental health wasn't as big as it is now. There weren't podcasts about this kind of thing, there wasn't information to turn to. So you didn't really know anybody else was going through these kinds of things, which is why I wanted to do this, because it is so important to know that other people are struggling. Because it did, it led me to my first suicide attempt at 18, purely because I felt so isolated. I was doing all of this stuff to hurt myself. And I didn't see a way out. I saw no way out whatsoever. And looking back on it, it's really sad because, you know, my dad found me, took me to the hospital and my stomach was pumped. And after that, it was never spoken about again. So life just went on as normal after that. So he drove you home and said nothing. No, nothing was said. You know, they knew I'd been self-harming. I mean, the marks were on my arms. I, you know, they, well, my dad, he, I don't know if he just didn't know what to do or wasn't able to do anything, but nothing was talked about and I was just sent home and that was that.
0: Yeah, oh my
1: God. I mean, it's
0: just yeah. incredible, isn't it, that first of all, when you go to a hospital, that you're not given some sessions of no, counselling, some, you know, yeah. information, that your dad doesn't speak to you about yeah. it. He obviously has no tools whatsoever to, he doesn't to really do know what it. to do, but even yeah. if you don't know what to do, you think you'd say something, you know, it's. Yeah, it's. Yeah oh my gosh incredibly incredibly difficult time so how did you move on from that
1: I didn't really I for a long time after that I definitely was in a dark place yet again and I just kind of wondered I can't even really tell you what I was doing you know my peers people of my age were having experiences That was so alien to me, you know, I didn't know anybody else who was going through the things that I was going through. And they were sort of going out and being young people. I didn't feel young. I felt very tired. I felt old. I felt exhausted. And I felt like I didn't want to do this anymore. And they're just, it was very, it was extremely isolating. And After I finished school, I tried to go back to Cape Town to reconnect with my adoptive mum. I think I always, I think as children, we have this innate need to be loved and to be looked after. And I think you just crave that so much that I went over to Cape Town and tried to reconnect with her. And it was a disaster every time. If I would fly over, she would you know, leave me in her apartment alone for five days while she went off with a boyfriend and then she'd come back like nothing happened. And it just went on and on like that. And I was in this vicious cycle of, I don't know, I, it felt so normal to me for, for, to be hurt and to be treated like that, that that's what I kept doing because it just felt normal. It's all I'd never known. And it all came to a head when I was over there, actually, I was 23. And I was over there trying to reconnect with my mum once again. And I got a call that Eva had died. One of my best friends in the UK had died. And she had died of an accidental overdose. And I was absolutely devastated, needless to say. And the first thing that my mum said to me was, why would you want to go and stand at someone like that's grave? Why are you crying about this person? I could understand if it was one of your other friends, but this person, why do you care? And, you know, I'll always say, and I always say it to Eva, even though she's not here anymore, she gave me the courage to finally stand up and say, I'm not doing this anymore because it, She was saying it about somebody that I loved and that I cared about. And I didn't love and care about myself at all. And her saying that about somebody that I truly loved and cared about, it was finally the wake-up call that I needed to, was you don't get to treat her like that. You might treat me like that, but you don't get to treat her like that. And I still had some time left, but I called and I wanted to change my flights to get home straight away to her mum, And I did. And we were at the airport and as I was leaving, my mum said, you know, this has really spoiled my weekend. Oh my and uh, I said, "It spoiled someone's life. I said, this is someone's daughter. This is my best friend. I'm very close to Eva's mother still. You know, this is, this is some, it's a tragic death. And I looked her in the face and for the first time I said, this is the last time you'll ever see me. And I got on the plane and I haven't seen her since. And, you know, it, I thank even now because I would never have had the courage to do that. I don't think if it wasn't for her. So it was such a devastating and it is still a devastating thing. But it also gave me the courage to walk away from something that was incredibly toxic for me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And isn't it amazing that we can put up with that stuff our whole life? Yeah. And it's not till it's done to somebody else and we go, Well, I'm not having that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not gonna yeah. have that to that person. Yeah. But we don't see yeah. it for ourselves for absolutely. all those. Absolutely. You know, but
1: absolutely
0: but, but I love that yeah, I love that Eva was able to save you from her, really. You know, yeah. she didn't deserve to have you and yeah, I'm so I'm so happy that you made that decision and yeah. you you were strong enough to do that because yeah. it is life-changing, isn't it, when you make it those is. decisions and stick with
1: them? It is. And I think that we have this societal expectation. I know that I've had it from a lot of my family members where if somebody's your family member, you stick by them no matter what, no matter how toxic they are for you, no matter how damaged they are as a person, You're expected to stay by them and I really don't understand, you know, why we can't have boundaries as human beings and it doesn't mean that I wish any ill harm on her. It doesn't mean that I'm still angry at her. It doesn't mean I hate her. It means I I don't want her in my life and that's okay and Mm -hmm. I've had a lot of people say to me over the years, you know, it's been a really long time. You should reach out to her. She misses you and... I can still say I'm not bitter about it but that still doesn't mean I need to speak to her and have her in my life and it's taken me a long time to decide that even though it might be good for her to have me in her life it's not good for me.
0: Yeah and that's such a beautiful strong decision and I think a lot so many people struggle with that for that reason because it is you're you're supposed to love your mum you're supposed to get on with you're supposed to allow whatever they do mm. and you're supposed to get through it, but actually you don't have to do that. You have to just decide what you need and I really respect that decision. But when you come back to England and and you come back for the funeral of Eva, you must have felt what, anger? Were you feeling confusion?
1: Where were you at in your life? You know, I was feeling A lot of sadness. I was feeling a lot of confusion and I was feeling a lot of anger as well. Unfortunately, I didn't tap into that anger immediately. And not long after Eva's death, I had another suicide attempt. Again, feeling incredibly lonely and isolated and had drifted massively from my dad had terrible relationship with my brother. Didn't know which way I was going in life, and I always had this at the back of my mind, where my mum had said to me once, "The apple doesn't fall far from the tree." And so I don't know whether I had a self-fulfilling prophecy of my mum. You know, was an addict. She struggled her entire life. This is just my genetic makeup. This is just where I'm heading. You know, I I think things are getting better and they get worse every time. You know, things kind of got better and then Eva died. It just got worse. And I just felt that there wasn't a point anymore into all of it. And then this is probably where I'm supposed to go. This is my genetic makeup. And it was the same thing. Went to the hospital, got my stomach pumped and nothing was ever talked about again. And yeah, I was really, really, really low. I was very low. Luckily, after that time, I finally got angry and I got angry at everything. And I got angry at my mum, at my dad, at my life, at my biological mum, at my biological dad. I got angry at everything and everyone in my life and I used it to fuel me. I had been sad for so long. I was so done with being the sad girl I couldn't do that anymore. And I just really tapped into that anger. And I decided that I was going to change my life. I didn't want to keep living like this. And I had this very, very, very small voice at the back of my head that said, you know, maybe you deserve better. And it was tiny. It was absolutely tiny. But I, it was and it was the first time that it was there. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go to uni, I'm going to get a degree, I'm going to do something with my life. And I didn't even have enough qualifications to get into uni. And I started doing night courses while I was working, you know, a retail job at 40 hours a week. And I, yeah, I got into uni in London. And I arrived there and I knew absolutely no one, no one whatsoever. But I did it. I got into uni for a teaching degree. And that was, I think, even though that was the start of a different me. That was the start of a new chapter.
0: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Yeah. I love that. I love that fire. And it is because that grief and that anger that's suppressed, it it makes us depressed. It makes, you know, that suicidal, you've decided to, to change that around and use that anger differently. And how, how amazing was that? And so you, and you worked 40 hours a week yeah. And studied at night to get into uni. That's incredible. That's I incredible did. to turn that around. Thank you.
1: Yeah, I, I I just looked around me and and I you know I kept telling myself, this is how your life's going to turn turn out if you don't do anything else. If you don't try, nobody's going to help you. You know, nobody helped me. You're going to have to do this not because of somebody, but in spite of somebody, and you're going to have to do this on your own. And I'm really glad that I did. I'm really glad I lent into that anger, and it's something that I do. You know, disclaimer: I did have to get you know therapy in the end about how to contain my anger, but I definitely i i, I lent into it and I used it to fuel me rather than hold me back.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I love that. And so you were living the uni life. How how was that? Because I mean,
1: you turn up somewhere you know nobody how does that go? It was a big shock purely because I was a bit older as well. I was 23 and lots of these kids were 18. And so I felt initially quite out of place. And then one day during a lecture, I met Robert and we clicked instantly. And he is this very confident, very beautiful man. and we very quickly became best friends and you know, by watching Robert every single day, he helped my confidence bit by bit by bit. You know, I'd been apologizing for who I was my entire life. I was apologizing constantly. And here was Robert just walking around. He didn't care what he wear, he didn't care what he said. He was very unapologetically himself and, he encouraged me to do the same and it was by watching him and being around him just felt so good you know it felt like home it was the first time somebody was there for me unconditionally it was the first time somebody listened to me somebody appreciated me and yeah he was one of the first best things that ever happened to me through watching him I then did little things little by little to speak up and not be treated in certain ways.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting when you've never been shown that before, it's like yeah. a whole new, it's like a whole new world, isn't it? And, yeah. and it's like, it's almost like you're given these amazing people in your life, like teachers, you know, they turn yeah. up and they they show you the way and yeah, it's such a blessing, isn't it? Just to get that yeah. one person that can change everything yeah. for you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And um, yeah, I think that Had it not have been for Robert, I wouldn't have got through the next big thing that happened in my life, which I'm quite nervous to talk about purely because it's not often talked about. And I think this is a pretty unique situation and definitely one that I was not prepared for.
0: Yeah. So this is to do with your dad, isn't it?
1: Yeah. 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 So I was 25, and I was in my second year of uni, and I'd made it through the first year really well, and things were going really well for me, and I was feeling really good about life, and I had Robert, and I had friends, and I had a life in London, and things were going really well, and I went home to see my dad, and I asked him if I could borrow his laptop to do some uni work, and As I was searching for a document that I'd saved and I couldn't find it anywhere, I couldn't find this document I'd saved and I came across child pornography. And not only that, not only the images, I came across the things that he'd been searching for on the Internet. You know, it was things like eight year old whore. It was it was graphic to say the least. And that completely shook my world apart. Yeah. my gosh. It destroyed me. Oh yeah. For so many reasons, not only because I'm now learning that my dad is potentially a pedophile, but because what do I do with this? I'm studying to be a teacher. I'm supposed to be protecting children, but I love my dad. He's the only thing I have left in my life. What do I do? You know, and I knew from my experience that if I was to tell anybody, they'd have to report it straight away because obviously he's, you know, he could harm other people. And I was completely and utterly once again isolated and had no idea what to do. And You know, I kept I looked at the images again because I just wanted to make sure that I was what I was seeing was true. You know, I made sure that I looked because I wanted to know that this was this was really happening, Mm. you know, for all of the stuff that my dad was a strange man. He was always on the strange side, but he would he's always been the one constant and he was always the one that made me feel like I was part of something else. And for a while, I did nothing until I confronted him about it.
0: Yeah. And how, how did he react?
1: He was pretty matter of fact. I told him what I discovered. I asked him if he thought he was a pedophile. I asked him some questions that I don't, necessarily know where I got the courage to ask him from but I'm glad that now that I did and he admitted that yes he's a paedophile and um I asked him you know was he ever abused you know where has this come from and he just said no that's how he's always been and I asked him if he'd ever abused me and he said no he couldn't which was difficult to hear because it's not, no, I didn't, or I wouldn't, no, I couldn't. Have you thought about it? Have you, did you think about it? You know, suddenly any happy memories I had of my childhood were just tarnished, were gone, you know, um, in an instant. And he made it very clear to me because, you know, I was, I'm saying this to you very matter of factly now, but I was crying. I was hysterical and, um, he made it very clear that if I ever told anybody he would kill himself and that it would be my fault. So I just, I felt like a fraud. I confided in two very good friends of mine, which was obviously one of them being Robert. And I went back to uni and I didn't know what to do. You know, I tried to speak to people. And as I started broaching the subject, I remember talking to a therapist about it or wanting to talk to a therapist about it. And as I started broaching the subject, they said, I'm just going to let you know, if you say something, I'm going to have to report it. You know, if you say the next part you're about to say, I have to report it. And then I was back at square one because in back of my mind, I just thought he's going to kill himself, you know, and that's going to be my fault. So what do I do? And, you know, a couple of people encouraged me, you know, why don't you take some time out at uni? You know, why don't you take some time to process this? And I just said, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. You know, I'm I'm not going back to where I was, you know, I don't want the actions of somebody else to control again what I'm doing now. And I said, I'm not doing it. So I think I just went into a complete state of denial. I have a lot of shame about that. You know, I try, I don't anymore. But if you were to say to someone, they found out someone was a paedophile, everybody would say, "I think, oh, I'd report them instantly. I'd call the police on them." You know, and I would have thought that too. You know, I would have said the same. I mean, it's almost the lowest of the low in our society. I think that had he have been a mur- had he have said he'd murdered someone, I would have preferred that. You know,
0: yeah.
1: it is the lowest of the low in our society, and I would have wanting to work with young children, you know, I sat there in lectures and thought I'm a complete fraud. What am I doing? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm not protecting these kids, you know, but I love my dad. I don't want him to, to do something stupid. You know, what do I do? So I had to do a lot of work in terms of trying to lift that shame of not saying anything. And I'm very lucky that he actually started accessing this kind of content at work. And they subsequently arrested him at work.
0: Wow. I mean, I know I understand your shame, but my God, I mean, nobody is equipped yeah. to make those decisions. Yeah. You know, nobody thinks that this is something, you know, it's not in your wildest dreams that you're ever going to yeah. think this is something you're going to have to deal with. Right. And And no one has ever told anybody how to deal with something like that. It's not, it's just not something we come across at all, you know, and what a, an awful shock for you to find out that this, uh, the only person that's been a constant in your life is a pedophile. My God. I mean, that's just, it's just horrific. I just feel so much for you coming across that and 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 you're really in it's it's you're really in such a difficult situation because he's saying he'll kill himself I mean you've also Mm -hmm. got that on your Mm
1: -hmm. conscience
0: it's it's an impossible situation yeah it is yeah and so what happened with your dad in the end well
1: so they arrested him at work and he was a pharmacist and so He was stripped of his job title. He was put on the sex offenders register. And in the UK, there's different levels of offenses. And I think that he'd wiped his computer purely because he got a very, he basically got a suspended sentence and a fine. And that was it. Almost able to carry on living his life as normal. However, he couldn't work. And, you know, even after that, I have to say that I not supported him, but I I kept in touch with him. And, you know, he told me that he is going to seek help for it. And I'm the kind of person where I don't like to just abandon people. So I will try until I've tried everything before I walk away from a situation. And, you know, he told me he's going to go to therapy and he's going to get help. And and he didn't do any of those things. And, you know, I remember him. I remember asking him after this had happened. You know, I said, can you just tell me? I said, what did you do before the Internet? You know, my dad's almost 80. I said, what did you do before the Internet? And he said, we had our ways. And he never went into it. And I remember trying to to push him to go into it. And I actually got so hysterical about it. I was doing the dishes. And every time I'd finished finished washing a dish, I was throwing them at him. And I was just in a complete rage and screaming at him to tell me more, you know, what's going on? What did you do before this? You know, what's actually happened? Because it turned out that he also had two sexual harassment cases that he was fighting in court that I knew nothing about and he never did so I still feel like to this day I think there's more to the story and I don't know what it is and shortly after that he moved back to Namibia and that was the last time I saw him wow my yeah. goodness
0: oh wow you you really yeah you really got you've got the the adoptive parents from hell really didn't you yeah
1: yeah you know that's something that links in with you know I then in the last few years I've got to know some of my biological family and the sad thing has been that there's been an atmosphere created whereby I don't tell my biological mum about what my life was really like there's an atmosphere of she can't ever know what you really went through. And that makes me sad and angry because none of these things are my fault, you know? And I became more open about my dad. I couldn't talk about him for a long time. And I found out that he was appealing his sentence and it just reaffirms that I know that I did the right thing walking away because he still doesn't think he's done anything wrong, you know? And I definitely started talking about him more when I was encouraged by a therapist that the more I hang on to his secrets, the more they feel like my own and the more that the shame, his shame feels like my shame when I had nothing to do with it. And so I made a point that I wouldn't go and broadcast it from the top of a building, but that if somebody asked me that I would be honest and tell them, You know, and if that made them uncomfortable, that was something they had to deal with. You know, I wasn't going to lie for him anymore. And so it was really disappointing when I started talking to some biological family members. And when I told them their first instinct was just to say, don't tell Wendy, who's my biological mum. Don't tell her. Don't ever let her know. Because it felt like something I had to keep to myself again.
0: Yes, that's an, oh,
1: another bunch of
0: secrets, isn't it, that you've yeah. got to keep, and yeah. and like you say, this is not your shame. No, it's not your shame to keep, and and that's the thing with generational trauma—we just get it handed mm-hmm. down to us, and we feel like it's ours, and we we can actually let it go. But so you're in contact with your biological mother?
1: I am. Every now and again, you know, I have to be honest and say that this is somebody, again, who I don't wish any, I don't have any bad feelings towards, but that I certainly don't really want in my life, I don't think, purely because of this, you know, perpetuating cycle of, I don't get to be myself, I don't get to say how I really feel. Um, and everything's superficial. You know, I'm now I'm one of these people who, let's have the difficult conversation. Let's have the awkward conversation. I refuse to live in silence and in things getting swept under the rug. My poor husband knows that I will have that conversation, whether it's uncomfortable or not. And I don't want to be involved with somebody where I have to silence myself again. And that's that's okay. You know, i have I have a really good relationship with my auntie, her sister. She came into my life a few years ago and she's the one who wanted to adopt me when I was one. And she's just my kindred spirit. She's incredible. She's the first person who really listened to me, you know, who really took the time to get to know me. And she's amazing. And she calls me her own. And, you know, I know she wishes that I did had ended up with her, but she'll listen to all of the uncomfortable, gory details about what happened. And that's all that I need, you know, so that's really incredible.
0: Yes, that's a beautiful connection, isn't it? Yeah. I'm so happy that you've got that. And and you also connected with another biological family. Who
1: was that? <laughs> I did, a sister. So I I never knew anything about my biological dad. And I knew that he was from Yugoslavia, but that was obviously in the 80s. And now it could be a number of countries. And so my husband got me a DNA test for Christmas Mm -hmm. one year, you know, one of the ones, my ancestry, where you Mm -hmm. see where you're from. And I did it and it came back and it said, you have a close match with someone called Melena. And I thought, well, that's quite an Eastern European surname. I bet that's his sister. And I told one of my friends and she looked, you know, looked up the name on Facebook and she said, I know this is really weird. This woman's too young, but her kid looks just like you. And I said, there's no way she's too young. You know, this is an auntie. And she said, I'm telling you, this kid looks exactly like you. And so I just messaged her and said, look, I don't know if by any chance you did a DNA test. Uh, My name's, I was adopted. So I think I have family potentially all over. And she messaged me back instantly and just said, oh my God, it's you. Are you Jay? And I said, yeah. You know, I said, who's this? And she said, I'm your sister.
0: Oh, wow. And
1: it was mind blowing. You know, this is 2020, so not that long ago. And she says, I've been looking for you since I knew you were born. So she is 10 years older than I am. And she'd grown up knowing that our dad had had another child. But because I went into the care system and then was adopted, she had no way of finding me. And she'd done this DNA test to you know a few years previously to try and find me. Oh wow! Yeah, and then she did. That's amazing. It's really cool. And you know, my sister and I—it's been such a nice piece of my puzzle because I get to know where I'm from now, and I get to know about my dad without having to know him. And she's incredible, and we get on so well. We we have the same brain, and she's been a big blessing in my life definitely and yeah. yeah it's it's been an incredible experience to meet her to get to know her. So you've met in person? Yes yeah, she lives in London and it's so strange oh. that we yeah so she's not too far so yeah I couldn't couldn't believe that she was that close and so we've met in person we probably talk most days and it's incredible she's and she actually encouraged me to do this because, you know, she's like, I think you have a story to tell. She always asked me, what are you going to do with what you know? And I always say to her, I don't know yet. What are you going to do with the information that you have and how you can help people? And I just say, I don't know. And she said, well, just sharing your story once could potentially help someone feel less isolated. So yeah, yeah she was definitely cool. a big reason why I did it.
0: Oh, that's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Well, how Yeah. Like, it's just crazy, isn't it? Now you do these DNA tests and it can open up this entire world. And she's actually done her test because she knows you exist somewhere. Yeah. That's just incredible. That's so cool. And did
1: you, so did you actually meet your biological father? I haven't. I mean, you know, my biological father and mother, they're quite the pair. They have had a lot of trauma. I think both of them. You know, my biological mother was gang raped at a really early age, which I think is what led her into the spiral that she was in. And my biological father, we don't really know. He's quite an enigma, to be honest with you. You know, we know he did prison time for stealing diamonds. He owned a nightclub at one point. You know, he dealt cocaine, but not a very, not the best character, and everybody that I've met on his side or speak to on his side have said, please get to know us, but don't waste your time with him. So I feel like that's fair. And I feel like I feel so good now knowing Melena, you know, my sister, and I don't need to. Again, I don't harbor any ill feeling to him whatsoever. You know, I'm in such a good place with that. Because just not wanting to speak to somebody doesn't mean that you're a bitter old cow, you know. It just means that you have boundaries and you don't want to cross those boundaries. And no, I have no desire to speak to him. No,
0: yeah, and that's yeah.
1: that's absolutely awesome. Like
0: I love that you're so clear on that, yeah. Um, and you're very clear on saying, you know, I have all these boundaries. How have you got to this place? Have you done a lot of therapy, or what have you done to be so clear on moving forward?
1: So I did a lot of therapy initially. And one of the things I learned was that, you know, my adoptive dad was actually manipulating me for a really long time and in a way grooming me as well, not in a sexual way, but you know, he was definitely grooming me to be there for him on his side. You know, there was, you know, I, I do think that my dad, my adoptive father thought about me more than his daughter. I think he almost saw me as a bit of a life partner. And, you know, there was a couple of instances where I was a teenager where my dad did try and kiss me, you know, open mouthed. And just the way that he's manipulated the situation definitely leads me to believe it was not a father daughter relationship that he had in his mind. And I think once the penny dropped for me about that and looking back and realizing how much I'd been manipulated I just decided that I was going to be quite fierce about myself and about what I allowed and didn't allow to happen you know I even I was dating guys that were not horrible guys but they were chaotic you know and I finally sat down one day and I'd split up with a boyfriend and I said, I'm not doing any of this anymore, you know, and I made a list of what I wasn't going to allow in my life anymore from that point onwards. And I wrote it down so that I saw it and I said, I'm not doing this anymore. And a few weeks later, I met my husband who was none of those things, you know, and had none of those attributes. And wasn't chaotic and initially it did feel uncomfortable because that was all I'd known but I made the decision to push past that I'm I'm just I'm I'm very fierce about who I am now and unfortunately for my husband I've become selfish in good ways where I don't allow certain behavior or I won't put up with certain things that make me unhappy at the detriment to you know to myself to who I am at my core but I've worked really hard to be able to do that and that's been a lot of self-reflection it's been crying my eyes out it's been sitting on the bathroom floor sobbing it's yeah definitely
0: I love the power I love the power of that you've got your power (laughs) it's awesome it's so good I just love this story because most people would just be a, a kind of a blubbering mess on the floor by this point, yeah. you know, and you, yeah. you've you turned it around and you're using your power. I know you have a beautiful daughter who's five. Yeah. So, yeah. so what do you want for your daughter's life? How do you want her experience to be
1: different? I want her to feel loved. I do not want her to for one second, think that she's not loved because I know that that feels worse than someone almost being in your space. I don't want her to ever feel like nobody cares about her. You know, I, she is, she saved my life. She's the best thing that ever happened to me. And I can honestly say that, you know, even though meeting my husband was incredible and changed my life, I have never cared about myself more since having my daughter. I really haven't. And I want to model that for her. I think that's really important. You know, a few days after I had her, I remember sobbing in the shower for probably a good hour and realizing that I would go through everything I went through again just to have her you know that this is the child I was meant to have and I adore her I want her to feel safe and secure and I want her to have stability and she comes before anything else for me you know, and I do, I make sure that I take care of myself too, because I know that I'm not a good mom if I don't take care of myself, but she makes me like myself. I like myself and I, I love myself, you know, and I, I love my body more. It produced my daughter, you know, I had all these body hangups and everything else. And now my, my body made her, I love it. And, but I'm fiercely protective of her as well yeah I love that and our our kids
0: do teach us more than yeah anybody we always think we're we're teaching them but they teach us everything I think just yeah like you say you know just just being able to love yourself and all of that it's just yeah such a gift your life has been a crazy ride I mean it's just been crazy and your adoptive family, you know, incredibly damaging, but I feel like you've just been sent all these angels to guide your journey. You had Eva, you had Robert, you had your husband, your auntie, Milena, and I truly believe that family doesn't have to be blood related. You create your own beautiful family. And I feel like although you've had so much chaos, you're also incredibly blessed and You're an amazing human. Thank you so much for sharing your story and for connecting with me. I've really loved hearing everything you had to share today. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening. I mean, you know, I came across your podcast because it's the way that you listen to other people and I think it's just incredible what you're doing and I'm so glad that the younger generation get to have things like this to listen to and to talk about because that didn't exist for me and had it have existed I think I would have felt a lot less alone so thank you for doing what you're doing because I think it's it's super super important well thank you so much
0: thank you for being on this journey of healing and community with me if you listen on apple I would love it if you could take a moment to post a review for the podcast, it would mean a lot. Check the show notes for all links recommended in this episode. If you're on Instagram, follow me at mybigloveproject and please share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. Thank you for joining me. You are such an incredible soul because you are you. You are unique your journey is unique and you can absolutely change the world with your story. Your time is precious and I so appreciate you being here. Thanks for joining me. I'll catch you next week.